the system performed as designed or in many cases better than we had predicted. When you start thinking about the system that we're flying here, the Orion spacecraft, and the fact that we essentially established our entry target line and performed our deorbit maneuver from a quarter million miles away when we did the return powered flyby by the moon, that is remarkable precision. We have a series of increasingly complex missions ahead of us on Artemis II. We are going to have our first crewed flight test. Welcome to Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. Artemis I was the first integrated test of NASA's deep space exploration systems. Launched November 16, 2022, the 25-day, 1.4 million mile uncrewed flight test was a major step forward as NASA and its commercial and international partners work to establish a sustainable presence on the moon to prepare for missions to Mars. Mike Serafin is the Artemis mission manager and joins us now. Mike, thank you for being our guest on the podcast. All right, thanks for having me, Dina. As you reflect on the enormously successful Artemis One mission, what excites you most about it? Well, the uncrewed flight test that we conducted in uh, late 2022 told us that we are absolutely on the right path for our Moon to Mars program and that we have a foundational human deep space transportation system. Uh, so that is the Space Launch System rocket capable of delivering large cargo and crew elements to the point of translunar injection, uh, the Orion spacecraft, which is capable of sending humans to the moon and then returning them uh, back to Earth through the uh, use of a, uh, an ablative heat shield. And then our ground systems are, you know, that we use to fuel and process and test and stack and launch the, uh, the space launch system and the Orion spacecraft, but also that we have all the right tooling test facilities and production uh, capabilities in place, as well as the infrastructure here on the ground, things like the Deep Space Network, the Launch Control Center, uh, the Mission Control Center, and then our recovery assets. So we've got all the foundational elements here, and uh, we are absolutely on the right path for our Moon to Mars program. Let's delve into your responsibilities as mission manager on the first Artemis mission. What all had to come together to make this a success? Well, there were probably 10,000 things that had to come together uh, in order to do that. But fundamentally, uh, you know, where my role starts is what are we doing and why are we doing it? And, and setting up for the initial flight test, one of the things that, that we focused on uh, very early on was what are our mission priorities and how do all the objectives fit into these categories of priorities in the event that we find ourselves short on time, short on propellant, short on performance? And uh, we use the mission priorities to align the teams and focus the work, uh, whether it was planning the, the normal mission or whether it was planning aborts or early return scenarios or alternate missions. Uh, and those mission priorities uh, manifested themselves in so many ways in terms of uh, the mission um, design and, and the analysis that needed to be conducted for power and for thermal and for propulsive uh, elements uh, throughout throughout the course of the mission planning, uh, it manifested itself in terms of the uh, launch commit criteria and the flight rules and the recovery decision criteria. 
uh, it manifested itself in terms of uh, contingency planning and um, mission procedures, as well as just our decision gates. And, and there were a lot of different things that, that kind of hinged off those mission priorities. And, uh, you know, we had to understand what we were trying to accomplish and the capabilities that were in place. Uh, so, you know, the spacecraft and the rocket inherently have capabilities, but they also have limitations, design limits, and, um, you know, design specifications. So we had to really dig down and understand what those capability constraints were as much as the limits. And then we also had to constrain the work uh, because we just couldn't analyze an infinite number of cases. So we, we had to establish, um, based on the priorities that we all agreed to, we had to establish what is the analysis case set and what is the relative priority of that work such that we could make the best use of people's time and, and our limited resources to get the mission plan. So, you know, fundamentally, that's, that's what um, my role was as a mission manager. And then when it came time to execute the mission, we had all these plans and procedures in place. And if we were off the script, uh, it came back to me because I was there during the planning process and understood fundamentally what was baked into the mission, uh, whether we had done the work or not, and whether it was in the, uh, the scope of the plans that we had um, on the shelf if it wasn't part of the normal mission plan. So that's, that's uh, what we had to do in order to get here. And, um, and thankfully we, we stayed largely along the, uh, the normal mission plan, which makes, makes my job relatively easy in flight. Uh, if, if we stay along the, uh, the planned mission and don't have to delve into an alternate mission or some other scenario. What were the toughest challenges you and the team had to overcome? Yeah, we had a number of challenges, uh, you know, just to get off the pad. Uh, we had to deal with hydrogen leaks on both our um, eight-inch quick disconnect, which is used to fill and drain the uh, core stage, as well as the uh, four-inch quick, quick disconnect, which is used to establish something called the hydrogen bleed, which is used to uh, thermally condition the um, the core stage RS-25 engines. And then and then we had a, uh, a sensor uh, issue on the engine bleed system, uh, and, and we were unable uh, during our initial launch attempt to confirm that we were within the uh, start box for the engines, uh, and we had to, to scrub and come back and reassess the, uh, what the hardware was telling us, and it turned out it was a sensor problem and not, not an actual engine or, or a core stage problem. And then weather. Weather was a chronic problem throughout the course of the Artemis One mission. Uh, if we go back to uh, the wet dress rehearsals and, and some of the testing that we did on the pad at the Kennedy Space Center, but then also uh, just prior to um, our initial set of launch attempts in late August, early September, we had multiple lightning strikes um, in the vicinity of the pad. And we have these uh, very tall uh, lightning towers out there that are designed to provide um, uh, protection for just such an event because we are launching from uh, the lightning capital of the United States, uh, the state of Florida, and the lightning system did its job. But we also had to perform due diligence and ensure that the vehicle was healthy and we had to uh, do some analysis and then some system checks after the lightning strikes occurred. Uh, we also had two hurricanes that uh, um, caused us some delay. Hurricane Ian, which was a Category 4 hurricane, made landfall um, on the uh, southwestern corner of the state of Florida and then basically went right over the top of the Kennedy Space Center 
as it moved to the north and the east. And that forced a rollback to the vehicle assembly building. And we, we protected the rocket and the spacecraft largely because that storm was so strong. And then we had uh, what was Tropical Storm Nicole, and it, it barely became a Category 1 hurricane uh, on November the 7th, just before our November 16th launch attempt that uh, we decided to ride out at the launch pad. And, um, you know, that storm caused a delay. We were initially aiming for November the 14th as our initial launch attempt, and we had to move to the 16th to give the team a little more time. And then on the very back end of the mission, we had weather issues as well. We had a cold front move through our primary landing zone off the coast of Southern California, about 50 miles off of um, the um, coast near San Diego uh, in the uh, what they call the fleet training area that the U.S. Navy uses. And we had to move about 300 nautical miles to the south uh, for our splashdown zone. And that uh, resulted in a change to our uh, our reentry test of the spacecraft. And uh, you know, we had enough flexibility to handle all that. Um, I, I think, you know, the team worked through those things very methodically and was very patient. And, and our stakeholders as well were very patient with us uh, as we worked through the weather and the hydrogen uh, uh, leaks and the, uh, the engine bleed challenges. And those are, those are the big ones that come to mind. But, um, you know, there, there were certainly a, a number of other issues that, that occurred throughout the course of the test flight. Your team put tremendous effort into planning and preparation. Did anything happen during the mission that you would categorize as unexpected? Yes, there were, you know, a number of things that we learned. You know, every every time you fly a vehicle for the first time, you have an, an idea or an understanding based on ground testing or modeling of how the system is going to perform. But you can't test exactly like uh, the vehicle is going to fly in the flight environment on the ground in, in many cases. And the one that really comes to mind for me is, is uh, what we refer to as dazzling of the star trackers. On the uh, Orion spacecraft, we have what's called an optical bench. And the optical bench is the, um, the mounting location for both of our star trackers as well as the optical navigation sensor. And it's located uh, on the service module uh, side of things near the, um, the thrusters that are used for in-space uh, attitude control of the spacecraft. And, and what we learned very early in the mission that by design, these thrusters were uh, thrusting um, above and within the field of view of the star trackers and the star trackers were being confused. Uh, they're, they're highly sensitive instruments they were being confused um, as they saw the plume and it was being lit by the sun um, and, and they were being picked up. And we, we continued to get what was called a component not ready flag. The star tracker saw something in the field of view, but it didn't match what it expected. It knows where stars are and, and other objects, uh, celestial objects are, but it was seeing something that it didn't expect. So um, the thruster plumes were, were dazzling the star trackers and we had to reach back into our industrial base and folks that use uh, similar systems and, and the team quickly resolved that through the Orion mission evaluation room, what was going on. Uh, we also had a couple other things that happened. One, one that we still don't fully understand on the power system side of the Orion spacecraft, there's something called a power conditioning and, and distribution unit. And uh, there are two power feeds per solar array wing. There's four solar array wings. So there's eight of these 
uh, power feeds that come in and they go through uh, something called a latching current limiter and then uh, to these power conditioning and distribution units and then the, the uh, power is distributed throughout the spacecraft. And the latching current limiters were opening but nobody was commanding them to open. Uh, the ground wasn't commanding it to open and the spacecraft wasn't commanding it to open. They were just opening. And we, while we don't fully understand uh, what, was, what was occurring there, uh, we do have a robust enough design that the system uh, was able to, to handle it. Uh, and, the, and the ground, every time we saw one of these uh, latching current limiters open, reducing the amount of power being fed to the system we were able to close those and, and restore full redundancy. So we did some testing uh, during the course of the flight to try to reduce uh, or, or eliminate uh, legs on the fault tree as to uh, where the, the issue was coming from. Uh, and, and we're still looking at that one. And then the last one I'll say, we're, we're bottlenecks with the data. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of information coming down and being recorded by the spacecraft and, and we want it to get to the ground um, but we have a, a, a wireless system, a Wi-Fi system uh, for solar array wingtip uh, images as well as uh, data recorded on board the service module. And that needs to be sent to the crew module for, for post-flight analysis as part of the um, uh, flight reconstruction and, and engineering data review. And we had so much data being recorded for engineering purposes, for imagery purposes, for video or just uh, standard command and telemetry that um, we, we discovered where the bottlenecks were and we, and we ran into a couple of issues uh, with the, um, the camera controllers that store the data being uh, just uncooperative and, and the team had to work through those. So there were, there were a number of issues that, you know, we, we kind of knew we'd have data bottlenecks, but we didn't fully appreciate it um, until we got into the flight. And then the other, the, the latching current limiters and the star tracker dazzling were things that we just experienced in the flight environment for the first time that we had never seen in ground testing. So many systems were tested through the Artemis One mission. As you've looked over the data, what stand out to you as key findings and benefits resulting from this mission? Yeah, Dina, that was, that's a great question. Um, I would say overall, the system performed as designed or uh, in many cases better than we had predicted. I'll give a few examples here. On the Orion spacecraft side, the um, power has about 20% more margin than we anticipated. Uh, and, and that was a result of the solar arrays producing more power, uh, but also the power consumption was lower than, than we had anticipated largely because the spacecraft was warmer than we thought it would be, uh, and we didn't need to use the, uh, the heaters on the service module as much to keep the propulsion system thermally conditioned. Uh, the propulsion system itself was on predict or used slightly less propellant than, than we had predicted. I think the, the last set of numbers that I saw was we were about 2% um, uh, less than we were predicting, which is actually a good thing. Uh, we've got more propellant there. Uh, and then the skip reentry of the spacecraft, when we came home, uh, we were well within the, uh, the five, I think it's 5.4 nautical mile uh, target to our, our splashdown location. In fact, we were 2.1 nautical miles from the target. And when you start thinking about the system that we're flying here, the Orion spacecraft, and the fact that we essentially established our entry target line and performed our deorbit maneuver, from a quarter million miles away when we did the return powered flyby by the moon, 
that is remarkable precision. Um, and then on the, on the rocket, the space launch system, it performed uh, better than expected across the board. Uh, the boosters, the core stage, the RS-25 engines, the, the Intercrawl propulsion system, the RL-10 engine, uh, just, just from top to bottom on the rocket, uh, we had remarkable precision there. I'll give a few examples. Um, the insertion altitude for the uh, core stage and shutdown of the uh, four RS-25 engines, we were aiming for a 975 by 16 nautical mile insertion altitude. We ended up flying 972 by 16 nautical miles. Uh, that was the actual, and that, that is just remarkable precision for a system that large. Uh, we had a total velocity error of around seven feet per second at the guided cutoff in the, in the insertion altitude, again, which is remarkable precision for, for a, uh, a core stage that when the uh, RS-25 engines are, are at full throttle or producing roughly 2 million pounds of thrust um, in total. And then uh, the interim crowd propulsion staging, RL-10 engine, uh, all the way through the point of transzone injection was, was dead on. It, it, it put us exactly where we wanted to be on our intercept trajectory to the moon. And then all the disposal maneuvers, uh, whether it was the core stage, the uh, interim crowd propulsion um, stage, or the boosters, all those were, were per plan and well within our safety and, and public safety requirements. And then um, on the ground side, you know, our, our exploration ground systems team and our, and our launch operations team applied a lot of lessons learned from the wet dress rehearsals and the, and the hydrogen leaks that we experienced in the, the engine thermal conditioning, the engine bleed uh, issues that we had. And they worked through all those uh, and, and got better every single time to, to the point where our third launch attempt, we, we successfully got off uh, the, the mission. And, and there were folks recalling that for some shuttle missions, it took five or more attempts. And, and we were prepared for that. But, you know, I think that's a testament to the team rolling in lessons learned. Um, all the umbilicals on the mobile launcher, uh, you know, retracted as designed. And then the mobile launcher itself um, performed and, and passed all the structural inspections. We did have some damage on the mobile launcher and we anticipated some damage. Uh, the, the thing that I think um, we, we all noted was the uh, elevator doors were, were blown off um, by the by the rocket. It, it produces 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust as it lifts off the, the pad and, and the elevators were out of service and we had to uh, work to restore those. And then we did see some um, pneumatic system leaks on the mobile launcher on both the gaseous nitrogen and the gaseous helium side. Um, and the team had to work to isolate those. But overall, you know, things were pretty much as expected and as predicted. Um, all the software on the, on the rocket, the spacecraft, the ground system performed as expected. And again, I think that's a testament to the, uh, the quality of workmanship, the level of test and integration across the vehicle. It just, it was, it was a remarkable test flight. Mike, Artemis 1 was the 65th human spaceflight mission you've been involved with during your NASA career. Could you share some of the highlights of your NASA journey and where the Artemis experience ranks for you? Yeah, that's that's another great question, Dina. And um, yeah, looking back across my career, I, one thing that sticks in my head is a, is a mentor of mine, um, probably eight years into my career, said, this job has the highest highs and the lowest lows. And um, 
certainly Artemis one was, was, a, was top five material in terms of highs. Um, you know, the lows, uh, that we're uh, being reminded that February the 1st of 2023, that that's the 20th anniversary of the loss of Columbia. And that was, that was certainly the low for, for my career as well as many others in the agency. Um, the highs, uh, you know, I can recall on two separate occasions, STS-129 and STS-132, um, being the lead flight director uh, where we worked with the space shuttle program and the International Space Station program to pull together um, logistics and assembly flights to the International Space Station. And on STS-129, took up a set of external logistics carriers with spares pumps and, and other equipment that have since been used to uh, restore the International Space Station to full functionality just through wear and tear of components. But then on STS-132, we flew up the Rosvet module, which is the, um, the uh, Russian docking port that's, that's currently on the uh, International Space Station. And we flew that up and, and put that on the International Space Station. And it was, for me, those, those two missions, STS-129, and STS-132 are still the top for me. And it was simply because we had a crew of astronauts involved and I was involved in the planning, the training and the execution of the mission. But then the capstone at the very end was I got to go in both cases to the Kennedy Space Center and watch the, uh, the space shuttle uh, fall out of the sky and hear the double sonic boom as it approached the uh, the runway at Kennedy and and glide uh, to wheel stop at the runway and then go uh, greet the crew as they came off the vehicle and um, and uh, that that to me is by far the highlight of my career um, and uh, I hope to do that uh, on future missions when we fly astronauts to the moon uh, Artemis one is definitely top five material but but flying with a crew and and preparing a mission with with America's finest. And then uh, getting to shake their hand as they come off the spacecraft at at the very end of the mission is 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 something that's hard to beat. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. How is mission management for a moon mission different than other projects and missions? Yeah, we when we were preparing for Artemis One, we benchmarked the International Space Station, the Commercial Crew Program. Uh, the space shuttle program and, and a whole host of other programs um, to understand how we needed to be constructed from a risk management and decision making standpoint. And I would just say that while there are similarities, uh, the objectives are different, the risks are different, and the players or the team members are different. Um, and I'll give a, I'll give a few examples. You know, for Artemis missions, we're flying to the moon. And, and it's just harder. Uh, we're coming back faster, uh, meaning we're coming back at 24,500 miles an hour or Mach 32 when we re-enter the Earth's atmosphere instead of 17,500 miles an hour or Mach 25 when we come back from low Earth orbit. We come back much hotter uh, through, the, through the Earth re-entry. Um, you know, the Orion spacecraft saw temperatures outside the heat shield approaching 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit or about half as hot as the surface of the sun. The space shuttle, when it came back, was coming back at roughly 2,200 degrees Fahrenheit, and um, and and the heat profile was was different. Uh, it's far farther. We are days away from Earth rather than hours away from Earth. Um, 
you know, in, in low Earth orbit, we're hours away. Um, but distance-wise, it's a thousand times farther from, from Earth when we're in the vicinity of the moon at roughly a quarter million miles instead of uh, roughly 250 miles in low Earth orbit. Um, you know, when you look at the Apollo program, um, it's different in the sense that we are going to the lunar south pole on, on future missions rather than the equatorial regions. Uh, and, and we are not necessarily going to have line of sight back to Earth. And, and that changes the risk profile and, and changes the, the complexity of the mission. But when you compare it to Apollo, we are going back sustainably, uh, meaning that, that we are building an infrastructure and a capability here that is, that is not to achieve a singular goal. It is there to explore uh, and continue to build and, and go further outward, uh, you know, we'll start with the moon and, and we'll go there sustainably and then we'll go on to Mars. But we also have partnerships across the board, uh, whether it's our international partnerships or our commercial partnerships. And that is also a, a difference from the Apollo program. And, um, and th those are, you know, some of the reasons why the Artemis program is, is different. Um, but in, in some ways, because it is human spaceflight has some similarities and some some heritage that we that we've been able to leverage. What's next with the Artemis program? Well, we have a series of increasingly complex missions ahead of us on Artemis II. We are going to have our first crewed flight test where we're going to send a crew of four astronauts into initially what is called a high Earth orbit. And uh, they'll do a 24-hour shakedown of the Orion spacecraft, test out the, the uh, life support system, as well as perform a, a, a proximity operations demonstration before committing to the point of translunar injection and doing a lunar flyby on a free return trajectory um, after one full day in orbit. Uh, Artemis three is our lunar landing where we will conduct a joint mission with the human landing system. We will rendezvous with Orion after launching on the space launch system. Uh, we'll rendezvous uh, Orion with the human landing system that will be staged in a uh, in a lunar orbit, and then take the human landing system, uh, two astronauts will take the human landing system down to the uh, south pole of the moon. And then uh, in the same uh, approximate time frame, we'll be launching the uh, foundational elements for the gateway, which now creates that sustainability aspect. Uh, we will have the uh, power and propulsion element as well as the habitation and logistics outpost, the halo module and the PPE of gateway that'll be launched uh, commercially and then staged in the, uh, the gateway orbit. And then uh, Artemis four, we will send a crew uh, to gateway, again, launching on the space launch system rocket. It'll rendezvous with the, um, the, uh, the gateway and um, a lander, and then we'll conduct a joint mission with gateway and then send a, another crew of astronauts down to the surface of the moon. And then Artemis V and, and, and future missions just get increasingly complex as, as we continue to build out and, and add to the sustainability of the uh, capabilities in the vicinity of the moon. So there's a lot more ahead, and, and, and uh, Artemis I was just the first step. What are the primary focus areas in 2023 to prepare for future Artemis missions? Yeah, in terms of uh, preparations in 2023, uh, you know, we will continue the, the production, assembly, integration, and test of the Orion spacecraft, the Artemis II spacecraft, which is currently at the Kennedy Space Center. 
uh, in the operations and checkout facility, and, and we'll prepare to uh, move that over to the uh, exploration ground system side in 2024 uh, and, and, and get us ready there. But we also have some lessons learned from Artemis 1 that we're going to roll in, whether they are in terms of uh, understanding our margins as we observe them to be during the Artemis 1 flight test and rolling those into our, our mission analysis and mission planning processes. But then there are also a number of, of operational lessons learned, whether it's the Mission Control Center um, interacting with the Deep Space Network team or um, whether it's uh, you know our ability to get data off of the spacecraft or um, understanding the uh, the power uh, conditioning and distribution unit uh, funnies that we've had. There's there's a whole host of lessons learned that we're going to go through a, a very robust lessons learned process and roll those in uh, so that uh, future flights, Artemis II and, and and later crewed flights can benefit from those. So that's, that's kind of our focus. Um, in addition to production of the uh, Space Launch System core stage, and then readying the mobile launcher uh, for the Artemis II mission and ins installing um, the necessary crewed systems, things like the emergency egress system and, and other um, crew safety features. Mike, we would love to learn more about those lessons learned. Maybe we can get back together again sometime in the future and talk through those. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's going to be a whole host of, uh, of lessons learned that, uh, that we're going to talk through and, and, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to um, to launch Artemis One uh, in the in the mid November and splash down in the mid December time frame. And and uh, now that we're in 2023, we're coming back uh, after some well earned rest after the holidays. And now we're now we're looking at what what the uh, the hardware told us and and what we learned here on the ground. Such exciting times! Thank you so much for joining us today. This has really really been interesting. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Dina, and, and thank you to your audience for just staying with us and for their interest in the Artemis program. Mike's bio is available on our website at apple.nasa.gov slash podcast, along with links to topics discussed during our conversation and a show transcript. If you have suggestions for a future guest or topic on the podcast, please share your ideas with us on Twitter at NASA Apple, that's A-P-P-E-L, and use the hashtag small steps, giant leaps. As always, thanks for listening.